this time with assisting kids. So the church that's third grade down to three years old, just uh, nursery grade. The rest of us this morning are going to be talking about how mature and immature Christians relate to each other. In a context like this, in a local church, they're going to be immature Christians, they're going to be mature Christians. Obviously, we're all works in progress, but that's what we're going to talk about in Romans 14. So if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to Romans 14. We're studying Romans right now as a church and brings us to this chapter. It's an interesting topic when you talk about immature Christians and mature Christians because the immature Christians typically think that they're mature Christians, and that makes it complicated. I know all of you are mature Christians, so it doesn't apply. But uh, that happens a lot, so that makes it complicated. Another thing that makes the, the topic interesting is that by nature it's controversial. Okay, Because when we're talking about this issue in Romans 14, we're talking about issues that aren't spelled out in black and white in the Bible. We're talking about what we might call issues of conscience, um, preference, personal conviction, not issues that are clearly spelled out in Scripture, not gospel issues. Uh, these are those other issues that some people have strong convictions about, perhaps because of their past, typically because of their past, and uh, others don't have strong convictions about them, and so there's controversy. Um, but this is a very important matter that we work through because we shouldn't have a church for weak Christians only and a church for strong Christians only, uh, in part because everyone would be confused because they wouldn't know what category they belonged in. But anyway... It's an important enough matter that Romans, which is a book that is this profound treatise about the gospel, gives a whole chapter to talking about it. So we know that it's an issue. And some of you have been a, a Christian longer than I have. A lot of you have. I've been a Christian for a couple of decades, though. And the longer I'm a Christian, the more sense it makes why Romans 14 is in the Bible. In Romans a whole chapter, because again, there's this tendency for us to divide and argue about these issues instead of being united in the gospel and then getting along with each other about these other matters. So I'm obviously glad that it's in the scripture. I'm glad we can learn from this as a church so that we can get along whether we're weak or whether we're strong or something in between. Romans 14 can easily be divided into two sections. The first 12 verses are the first section, and then the second half comes in verses 13 to the end. Just by way of quick review, Romans 14, 1 to 12, dealt with the matter of not judging each other. Whether you're a strong Christian or a weak Christian, we're supposed to get along, we're supposed to not be judgmental toward one another. These aren't biblical issues anyway. Why don't you just go ahead and look at verse 4. It'll be the only verse we look at in the first 12 verses, but it's a good recap. Verse 4 says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Implied answer is, you're nobody. We all belong to Christ if we're Christians. It is before his own master, referring to Jesus, that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. In other words, he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And as I mentioned last time, that's gospel talk. And so we need to be careful we don't have Messiah complexes, right? And so I'm, if I'm a strong Christian, I'm busy trying to impose my personal preferences on gray issues with weak Christians. Or if I'm a weak Christian, I'm trying to take my personal preferences, my own conscience issues, and I'm trying to impose them on the opposite side and vice versa. The point is, we belong to Jesus. So do what he says, know that you stand before him, and don't make a big fuss about these issues that aren't spelled out in the Bible anyway. 
That's the gist of Romans 14, 1 to 12. Let me add a footnote. The footnote is, please remember, comes in a bigger context. He's not talking about gospel issues. We do judge when it comes to gospel issues. Read the book of Galatians. It's very judgmental. Because there are people who are saying salvation is by grace, through faith in Christ, and what you do. And the Apostle Paul takes the gloves off and he judges. And he says, you're anathema, right? You, you, you're, this is not preference issues. This is you're messing with gospel issues. That's a different category. Also, in that footnote, remember, he's not talking in Romans 14 about black and white biblical issues. He's not talking about issues of black and white morality, for example. At the end of Romans 13, 13 you might say he judges. He, might, he says, look, second coming is about ready to come. I'm paraphrasing. We're expecting Christ to return. If you're a Christian, don't, don't be getting drunk. That's a judgment. Black and white. Don't be sleeping around. Judgment. Black and white. We move to Romans 14. What about these other issues? Eating certain foods, observing religious holidays, drinking wine, not drinking wine. What, what about these issues? What about them? Second half of Romans 14, which is verse 13 and following, primarily addressed to strong Christians. That's all of you. <laughs> we're strong. We're mature. <laughs> addressed to strong Christians and helping us to not, to use biblical phraseology, to not cause the weaker Christians to stumble. To not boast our freedom up so much that we can eat anything and everything because we're mature, because we know God owns this great green earth and it's all good, which is all true. We're going to see that in this text. We saw it last time. But if you're mature, you can say that. The Bible's going to call you blessed because you know you can eat anything and drink anything. You're blessed. But be careful that you don't push a less mature Christian to eat anything, drink anything, when they are still immature and they actually think it's wrong. They're going to violate their conscience. We don't want them to violate their conscience. We want them to grow, have a more biblically informed conscience, so they can be mature also. Okay, there, there's the whole sermon. Let's close in prayer. No, let's not. Let's see it in the text. I just gave you my take on it. Let's actually see it in the text, but I wanted you to kind of see where we're going. We saw last time, strong Christians eat anything, drink anything, a day is a day is a day is a day. Less mature Christians, maybe because of the background they're coming from, maybe they can't eat certain foods at certain times of the year, like a lot of people in Omaha at springtime. Or they can't eat certain kinds of fish because of their religious background. They have to reserve or observe certain special days. They're coming out of some kind of fundamentalistic kind of background and there are those taboos that Christians just don't do even though the Bible doesn't talk about them. Mature Christians say, bring it on. But a less mature Christian has a real problem. How do we deal with the less mature Christians? Because Omaha Bible Church has mature Christians, immature Christians, and everything in between and we've got to get along on these issues because we're not about these issues anyway. We're about the gospel to begin with. Okay, with that in mind, I hope it helps. Uh, let's jump right in and get after it. Verse 13 says of Romans 14, Therefore, he's going back to Jesus his Lord. We're accountable to him. He's our judge. Don't judge each other. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. 
Stop it if you've been doing it. But rather, decide. Now he's talking to mature Christians, strong Christians. Never to put a stumbling block or something that's going to trip them up. Or hindrance, something that's going to get in the way. A hindrance in the way of a brother. Now we're off and running. Mature Christians, don't ever put a stumbling block in the road, if you will, so that immature Christians trip up over it. As they're seeking to live for the glory of Christ, He's bought them with His, with his own blood. They're seeking to grow and grow spiritually. We need to be careful that we don't put things in their way that mess them up, that get them off the right path. And that's what He's saying. Whether they be food, drink, other issues, you name it. Verse 14 then says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. There's one of my life verses. <laughs> That's just a great verse. He's, not, he's obviously speaking metaphorically. He's not talking about there's no such thing as something that's dirty. No, but spiritually speaking, when it comes to things in and of themselves, there's absolutely nothing, 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 nothing that's unclean. It's all fair game. Now, these things can be used wrongly for sin. Romans 13 talked about those. But inherently, in and of themselves, there's nothing that's bad. So, that's a very, very helpful verse. I would call that a touchstone verse. It's a litmus verse. And you think Paul represents the strong or the weak in saying that? I think it's pretty obvious he represents the strong. The strong Christian, the mature Christian, could say what Paul says, and maybe you can, maybe you can't. This is a good test to see if you're a strong Christian or a weak Christian today. And I'm not trying to be insulting at all. I'm just trying to say this is what it's talking about. Can you say with Paul, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself? If you can, you're in the stronger category because you understand the issues. Here's what's happened in Paul's life. He's been exposed to the Scriptures long enough as a Christian. He's been learning so that he can, the word he uses there, he can know. He can know that God is the creator of everything. He made everything good. No, he says in the end, very good. So he knows this. Not only does he know it, he uses the next statement, and am persuaded. I not only know it in my head, but I'm fully convinced. We might even use the, the, the phrase borrowing from 1 Corinthians. I not only know it to be cognitively true, but my conscience knows it's true too. So I can know that it's true and I can partake and it doesn't bug me a bit. And we'll talk about conscience in just a little bit. It's pretty interesting. That's a strong Christian, a mature Christian. They've got this figured out. Confident assertion. The reason he can say this too is in that little statement, in the Lord Jesus. Stop and think about that for a moment. In the Lord Jesus, nothing is unclean in itself. That's, that's cool. <laughs> if you don't know anything about Jesus, but you're into religion, there's going to be rules. There's probably going to be rules about food. There's probably going to be rules about drink. There's probably going to be rules about certain high holy days, so on and so forth. And it makes sense. It just makes sense. Because after all, your acceptance before God is based upon what you do. So we need a lot of rules. 
We need a lot of laws. We need a lot of food laws. We need all kinds of special days. And as long as you can stay on this treadmill long enough, everything is going to be okay with you. He says, in the Lord Jesus, there's nothing unclean. See, because in the Lord Jesus, using that statement he likes to use, union with Christ, by faith in him, you're united with Christ. So Christ kept the law perfectly, including food laws of Leviticus 11. He kept the law perfectly and completely so that the law would be fulfilled, uh, Matthew 5, Matthew 3. Not only that, he dies a sinner's death. Even though he wasn't a sinner, he was the perfect law keeper fulfilling all righteousness. He dies a sinner's death to atone for our lack of law keeping. Not only that, he rises again from the dead, first of all, to show that it actually was legitimate and God accepted his perfect sacrifice and his perfect righteousness, but also so that we would be united with him and not be enslaved to our sin. This is great gospel truth. And when you really get that, you really understand the gospel, all of a sudden you understand that your standing before God has absolutely nothing, 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 nothing with what you, to do with what you do. It's all what Christ did. <laughs> There's nothing unclean. It is so not about food. It is so not about drink. It is so not about days or lack of days. It is about the Lord Jesus Christ to the point where this has been rolling around in his mind long enough. Where he can not only say, I know this, but I know and I am fully convinced of this. Gut level, conscious level, conscience level, I own it. So Paul can go from being a Jew following Leviticus 11 food laws to maybe being an immature Christian Knowing the truth, but you know what? Still kind of got a lot of baggage here. To saying at the restaurant, how's the pork tenderloin? And not even flinching. Is the shrimp fresh? Right? It's deluxe what's happening here. Fully convinced. It makes him a mature Christian. See, he, he, he understands this business of Romans 8. We learned that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 39, in that context, it's not about food laws. Some of you, and I'm not trying to be insulting again, I'm just preaching this sermon trying to have it make sense. Some of you are still thinking, because of your background perhaps, that you've got to follow certain food laws. I'm not here to try to get you to violate your conscience. I want you to understand the gospel that it's, so you understand it's not about that. And maybe someday you're going to have a clear conscience like Paul did and you'll say, I can eat anything, anytime. I know and am persuaded. He knows the gospel well enough to know that he can say that with a clear conscience. Let's talk a little bit about conscience. I don't want to do a whole sermon on it, but here's just a mini little snippet regarding conscience. And again, I'm using the word conscience because Paul uses it in the parallel passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And so I think we can understand it. We use it even in Christian vernacular, black and white, absolute biblical issues, and then there are issues of conscience. So I'm using it in in that sense. I'll define conscience this way. It's our internal warning system. It's our internal warning system. We all have it. Unbelievers have it. Believers have it. We all have a conscience. God made us with a conscience. It's a great gift. And it causes us, it's the alarm system that causes you to say, don't do that, it's wrong. 
or it's okay to do that. We all have that. Let me give you another definition. J.I. Packer puts it this way. The conscience alerts us to the moral quality of what we do or plan to do, forbids lawlessness and irresponsibility, and makes us feel guilt. Where does guilt come? come comes from conscience. Shame and fear of the future retribution that it tells us we deserve when we have allowed ourselves to defy its restraints. In his very fascinating book, The Vanishing Conscience, John MacArthur says this, the conscience entreats us to do what we believe is right and restrains us from doing what we believe is wrong. In another place he writes, it is the automatic warning system that tells us, pull up, pull up before we crash and burn. It's a good gift from God. Unbelievers have a conscience and it's informed by their culture. It's informed by their religious teachings. It's informed by their parents. And so that's the data that goes in the conscience, telling them right and wrong. Whether it's biblical or not biblical, they have a conscience. Believers have a conscience, and we want the Scripture to inform our conscience so that we've got the right data going in. And sometimes we've got to get rid of the old data over time and through God's Word and through prayer and through the power of the Spirit. Get rid of the old data... And we've got to put enough new data in so that our conscience is clear that, you know what? Everything on God's green earth is good and acceptable. The Bible also talks about having a seared conscience. That becomes relevant because what we don't want to do here is have people go against their conscience again and again and again, and your conscience is, is seared, and now you just do whatever you want to do. I don't know if this is the best time to talk about it. Let me mention it now, and I may have to mention it again. Where we're going to go in the passage is if you're a mature Christian, you know you can do anything. Biblical conviction and your conscience is clear. A less mature Christian, they might learn that it's biblical, but they still have trouble with it. You don't want to push them to violate their conscience. That conscience is a gift from God. Because if they violate their conscience on gray issues... It's going to set a precedent, and now they're going to get used to doing what they think is wrong. And now there are going to be biblical things that they don't do because they've gotten so used to violating their conscience. Well, that's getting ahead, but it was on my mind, so let's keep going. Verse 14, I promise we'll go faster. Verse 14 goes on to say, But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. That's quite a qualifier. There's no such thing as something unclean, and I'm convinced of that. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. And you say, that's double talk. Is Paul completely prayed the prayer of a postmodern? I mean, did he learn this from Derrida, the French philosopher? No, he's not going there. But he's dealing with issues of conscience. If you think that it's wrong to do this, then it's wrong. Don't do it. That's what he's getting at. I wrote it down this way. If a less mature Christian thinks that something that is okay for Christians is not okay, then it isn't okay for them. If a less mature Christian thinks that something that is okay for Christians is not okay, then it isn't okay for them. Here's a scenario. If you come from a religious background that says you shouldn't eat meat, come from that background, 
you get converted in Christ. So if it's Hinduism, no meat, only veg. As it says on the signs in India, veg. Veg, no veg. Well, if you're only veg because you're a committed Hindu. You become a Christian and you figure out it's not based upon what you're doing. It's based upon what Christ has done. And you can learn, you know what? You could actually eat meat. But if you're not comfortable with that, then don't do it. Because you're going to violate your conscience. Don't do it. And I, as a Christian who knows you can eat meat, should not push you to eat meat. I don't, 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 don't want to. I shouldn't. Now, in time, you're going to read the Bible more, and you're going to see that God has given us dominion over the earth, and these things are okay. You're going to read Acts 10. You're going to read 1 Timothy chapter 4. that says it's all good and it's all acceptable, and you might be ready to go to Outback. But you might not be. And you know what? It's okay. There's a place for you here. And people who do go to Outback ought not be telling you that you must go to Outback. Seriously. The amazing thing about the Bible is it's dealing with all cultures coming together in the church of Jesus Christ. And so we're having all different kinds of people at different maturity levels. And so we say, weak and strong need to get together and not make it about this issue. It's about the gospel. It's about the gospel. By, by the way, just jump ahead at the very end. We'll see why it's this way. Why we, why we need to be so careful with people who have a, a conscience issue. Verse 23 says at the very end, but whoever doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. See, you're a strong Christian. You're saying, it's not sin. You're right, it isn't. But if that person thinks it's sin, God's word says it is sin because they're violating their conscience. We don't want that to happen. They can keep eating veg only or whatever the other issue is. It's okay. It's okay. Progressing further with some application in verse 15, we read, For if your brother is grieved, hurt is the, is the word, if he's grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. That's helpful. We of all people should know that, that, that love is something God gave us before we were mature. Not only were we not mature, we were his enemies, Romans 5 says. And so he shows us his love. And so how should we, if we're trying to, to mimic God's love and we're trying to reflect God's love as we deal with other Christians who don't understand this yet and don't have a clear conscience, well, we're not going to push them to violate their conscience because that's not loving. That's easy to understand. What's a little bit harder to understand is what he means by grieved. Because sometimes people take this, I think, out of context and, and, and have this mean your brother's grieved. Uh, translation, idea, they're mad. Offended in that sense. They're just mad at you because you're a mature Christian and you eat whatever you want to eat or drink whatever you want to drink. I don't think that's the idea based upon the whole chapter and the whole context and the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 10. The word means hurt and not just feelings hurt. There's some kind of damage that's been done to you. Well, greater context would be there's a stumbling block. 
Greater context would be, it's somehow messing up your sanctification. Greater context would be, because it's going to lead you to violate your conscience. That's how you're getting hurt. This isn't just about getting mad. I would never want to drink wine because some immature Christian might see me and get angry. Well, I, I don't get my kicks on making people angry. At least not all the time. But <laughs> that's not what this is talking about, though. Hurting them because they're going uh, to violate their conscience. They're still immature. They, they, they think that this is absolutely sinful. And, and if you're going to push them to do what they think is wrong, then for them it is wrong. 15 goes on to say, but what you eat, and based upon what we've been saying, you're free to eat whatever you want. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. That's one of those verses where there's a word that should jump out, and it's a big, heavy-handed word, destroy. Whatever this means, it's a big deal. Be strong Christians. Those of you who are saying, I can eat whatever I want to eat, hallelujah. Day is a day. I'm not enslaved by all of that religious baggage I used to have. Awesome. This scripture is going to go on to call you blessed. But you could act in such a way that would destroy one for whom Christ died. So be careful flaunting your freedom. I don't think he means destroy in the sense of lose their salvation because then Romans 8 wouldn't make any sense. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Height nor death, angels, principalities, life, death, blah, 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 blah. That sounds bad. On and on and on. But something cataclysmic, spiritually, could happen in their life. Crash and burn. And this is where I was supposed to say what I said earlier. But it's second service. Give me a break. They get used to violating their conscience on a gray issue that's not a sin issue. And now they're getting used to doing what they believe to be wrong. When you start doing that on gray issues, it's really easy to have a seared conscience. You don't have feeling anymore. And you start doing the wrong things with true biblical issues, black and white issues. In the name of Christian freedom, it's a train wreck. You know how it goes? By way of trivial example, hard to tell a lie. Not so hard to tell a lie the second time. And on and on and on it goes. And before you know it, it's a giant web of lies. And it's really easy to lie. You're quite good at it. Be careful with your freedom. Don't push it on people who don't sense the same sense of freedom because it may lead them to violate their conscience, which is going to then cause them, it says here, destroy. It's going to be really, really, really bad. 16 says, so do not let what you regard as good. Remember, it really is good. Be spoken of as evil. God says everything is good. But let's handle our enjoyment of the good things in such a way that people can't say that good led to bad in so-and-so's life. Let's have it not be that way. 
Because then people start thinking that what God says is good is bad. We don't want that. We don't want that. A good reminder of why we should care about other people comes in verse 17. I love this verse. For the kingdom of God... Pat Abendroth needs to hear this verse. Hopefully you do too. For the kingdom of God, which is what Christians care most about, is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's just a great... That's a great gospel reminder. Kingdom of God is not about food and drink. Think about this and think about what he means by this in the flow of this context. What is the most important thing in the whole world if you're a Christian? Well, it's Christ. And Christ is the king. We're talking about his kingdom. We're talking about gospel realities. Oh, yes, you're, you're a citizen of this kingdom, the kingdom of this world. And you should be salt and light and, 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 and a light, uh, salt and light. And not only that, you should love your neighbor uh, because you're a citizen of this kingdom. Be responsible. Respect the government, Romans 13. Yes, we're citizens of this kingdom and there's some great things about that. Enjoy being a citizen of this kingdom to the glory of God. That's 1 Corinthians 10.31. Anyway, but where my heart really should beat with the greatest affection, where it really matters for me if I'm a Christian, is not the kingdom of this world, but the kingdom of God. That's what's most important. So I get excited about freedom and eating. I get excited about freedom and drinking. I get excited and maybe sophisticated. Isn't this amazing that God gave us these things and we can enjoy these things and salvation isn't by works. We've got all these amazing freedoms to, to, to enjoy these things. Sometimes I need a little reminder that my affections really ultimately most significantly the kingdom of God all these things are going to pass away as good as they are and then he says but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit and you can take those as practical things because we're citizens of the kingdom we pursue righteousness that's true we are citizens of his kingdom we pursue peace because we have peace with God we pursue peace with others that's true and as a result we have joy in the Holy Spirit that's true I would lean more toward the interpretation here either way could be true and both are biblical that he's talking about positional truth here think about that the kingdom of God is about righteousness how about positional righteousness the gospel is about righteousness right? Jesus Christ, our righteousness. We've been justified. That means declared righteous. That's Romans 5. This is this amazing reality. The kingdom of God is about Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. That's what the kingdom of God is all about. It's about Christ, his righteousness being credited to us by faith. And not only that, the kingdom of God is about Christ securing peace for us with God when we were at war with God. This is Romans 5.1, I think. Therefore, having been justified, declared righteous, by faith, we have peace with God. That's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is gospel. Oh, and then there's fruit of the gospel. Joy in the Holy Spirit. I've got so much joy, it's not even funny because I'm not going to hell. And I deserve to go to hell. And the angels should worship God for sending me to hell. Because it would be fair, it would be righteous, it would be just. And yet Jesus Christ lives and dies and rises for me and I'm no longer under any condemnation. 
My salvation can't be lost. I couldn't gain it to begin with. It was gained for me by Christ. I can't improve my standing before God any. Nor can it be reduced. That's the kingdom of God. Righteousness. Peace. And the joy that comes from that. It's not about food. So when you get together to talk with other Christians, whether they be weak or whether they be strong, you know what? You can enjoy some of these great things on earth. But your passion is not that anyway. Your passion is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So now we can all get along. Sometimes we get confused. I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. No longer shackled. That's good. It's because of the gospel, but don't forget the gospel. I made a personal note to myself and wrote just a little while ago, the freedom because of the gospel is not the gospel. I'm free to eat anything and everything and drink anything and everything. But that freedom isn't the good news. It's because of the good news. The good news is Christ. It makes a huge difference. Let's keep moving now. We'll do a whole series of verses together and then we'll work on some application. Whoever thus serves Christ, that's assuming he's bought us, he's redeemed us out of the slave market of sin, now we belong to him as his servants. Whoever thus serves Christ, how? By loving other Christians, by not pushing them beyond where they should be pushed. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. If you live your life that way, of service to others and love toward others, care with your freedom, that will be acceptable to God. That's what He wants to do, and you'll be approved by others as well. That's commendable. Verse 19, So then, let us pursue what makes for peace. Now it's not horizontal it's, or vertical, it's horizontal. Peace and for mutual upbuilding. Well, what is that? What, what would fit the bill for verse 19? What would fit the bill for verse 19 would be gospel kingdom realities, Right? If we can't get along around that, then we're, we can never get along. <laughs> okay, now let's do 20, 21, 22, and 23. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. I, I underlined everything in verse 20 and anything in verse 21, right? Everything is indeed clean. But don't do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Verse 22, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Then he says, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. In the flow of things, I think it's talking about the strong Christian. If you think that all things are clean and nothing is unclean, you're a blessed man or a blessed woman. You're blessed to be mature. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself. You have a clear conscience for what he approves. I can just eat it. It's awesome. What a blessing. Spiritual growth. Verse 23, but whoever doubts, see this is the weak Christian, but whoever doubts... Not like Paul. He says, I know and I am persuaded, therefore he's blessed. Whoever doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. 
Application, I've got three questions in a second, but we walk away from the first half of Romans. Don't judge if you're strong. Don't judge if you're weak. It's all good, as the saying goes. Second part, you walk away with and you say, I know the second part of Romans 14 is for a strong Christian to be very careful dealing with weak Christians. I know that everything is fine and good and everything is good for me to enjoy, but not everybody thinks that. So I've got to leave room. I've got to be patient. Pretty easy to understand. I love this text because I know Omaha Bible Church is a church with both kinds of people. And I think we'll always be that kind of church, as I mentioned next week. Because we're all trying to sort things out and learn. We don't all know the Bible day one. And therefore, the Bible hasn't been working its work in our conscience. So we're works in progress. So we're being careful with each other. But those of you who are weaker Christians, be careful and how you look at more mature Christians. Don't judge them. Three questions of application. Number one, how do we help immature Christians to become mature? How do we help immature Christians to become mature? This text doesn't answer that question for us, but it's begging the question. Surely Paul doesn't want immature Christians to stay immature forever. That doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense at all. So, how, how would we do this? I, I take it we would do this by preaching God's word, all of God's word, encouraging people to be reading the scripture so that they can have a biblically informed understanding and a biblically informed conscience. Then let's follow up Bible intake with, let's follow it up with praying for one another that we could become mature, that our conscience could become free to enjoy every good gift that's from above. But here's what we don't want to do. This does come from our text. In the heat of the moment, don't push it. I think that's a very helpful way to summarize what we would be getting at. At the heat of the moment, don't push your freedom, which should be their freedom too. Because if you push, then maybe they're going to do it even though they're not ready to do it. So keep that in mind as you're trying to think through, how can I help immature Christians become mature Christians? Or how about you? How can you become a more mature Christian if you think not everything is good? I'm glad we don't have food here. I'm glad we're not doing this over lunch and they just brought the drink menu. I'm glad. I'm glad this isn't a religious holiday. I'm sure it isn't somewhere, but not that I'm aware of. Valentine's Day, right? I'm glad. It's not the place for that. But this is the place for it. Even by you looking at Romans 14, even though the second part is primarily addressed to strong Christians, you've got to listen in on the conversation. And it hasn't been because we've been trying to make fun of you. We're just going through the Bible. And you're having to kind of let this, this work on your heart. It's good. This is so good. Another question would be this. What are examples of this sort of thing in 2011? Maybe I should have done this at the beginning because you might be thinking this is all so first century that it's irrelevant. But I think you're all more mature than that. 
How about Jews and food laws? Someone gets converted to Christ, Jesus as Mashiach, Messiah. They got Jewish food laws to deal with. Romans 14 is very applicable. How about people who are coming out of Roman Catholicism? Some of you are. And Lent. And you read 1 Timothy 4 and you say, it's all good and fine. Shouldn't forbid eating foods. I read Romans 14. Don't eat meat during Lent if you are not knowing and fully convinced. Please don't. Please don't hear this sermon and think, I need to do this now. You don't. You don't. Now, if you don't understand the gospel, then I want to talk about Lent and I want to push your buttons. Okay, if you think somehow, and I, like, I do like Lent because I like talking to people about why they do Lent, and I like to talk to people who are involved, and I like to say, well, why do you do Lent? Well, usually they don't know. Church says, not always, but and I like to keep pushing the buttons a little bit, and a lot of times, most times, maybe not with you if that's your background, but most times it's something about paying for sin. I know that it's a gospel issue. I know they don't understand the gospel. And I can use it as an evangelistic opportunity. And then I'm probably going to push. But I'm talking to an unbeliever. Different issue. I might say, well, I gave up Lent for Lent. And I might make a little fun. I'm not making fun of you if you understand the gospel. But if somebody doesn't understand the gospel, I'm going to do anything I possibly can to rock their mind so they could understand that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But if we're having dinner, you're coming out of that background, you understand the gospel, it's Friday, and you order the mahi-mahi, I'm not going to say, oh, we Christian now, are we? I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that in a million years. In fact, I might order the mahi-mahi too. My wife, I don't know what she's going to order. She's going to be unsensitive and order the filet. No, she's not. She'll get the salad. <laughs> she doesn't like fish. But you see the point? This is alive and well in Omaha, Nebraska. It's alive and well in some of your lives. You've got to grow through it. You've got to think through it. Muslims and pork. We have a friend who gets converted out of Islam. They don't have to eat pork. Over time, they probably will. Because they're going to mature and they're going to see that they can eat it to the glory of God. Hindus and meat. Fundamentalists and wine. There's a real one for you. I've got to be really careful. I want to push people to grow and understand the Bible better. I want them to understand Psalm 104. God has given wine. It's a good gift from God given to make the heart glad. I don't want Christians walking around saying what God says is good is bad. That's a really bad position to be in, by the way. I want to help them understand when they say, but back then it wasn't alcoholic, it was just like grape juice. I want to under help them understand that they, they, they should buy swampland if they're using that rationale. 
Ephesians 5 says, don't get drunk with grape juice. Hello? Doesn't make any sense. I want to help. I want to be pastoral. But if you haven't come to the place where you know that is true, like Paul, and you have been fully convinced, then please, please don't order a beer. Because you'll violate your conscience. Now I just opened up a huge can of worms. We could talk a lot about other issues. Just be, just be careful what you want to say, but we should live by a higher standard and that kind of stuff. This is just for free. I should just mention it. Jesus really doesn't take kindly to higher standard people. Read Matthew 23. It's the, that's what the Pharisees did. And he locks and loads on them because now they are saying that what God says is good is bad. And he teaches, clearly Jesus teaches, that when you add human-made religious laws that God doesn't use, God doesn't ordain, God doesn't sanction, it inevitably will lead to rejecting the ones he does sanction. It's amazing. Well, I think enough of that, but there is a third. And this one's kind of off the beaten path, but it's important. How does this passage help us relating to alcoholics? How does this passage help us relating to alcoholics? The old word, the biblical word for that is drunks. How does it help us relate to drunks, people who get drunk and drink too much of what God says is good? Just for shock value, because this is how the passage is usually used. Just for shock value, how does this help us? Let me say it doesn't help us at all. Because it's not what it's talking about. Romans 14 is not about drunkenness. It's not about alcoholics. It is so not about drunkenness. Think about it. It's talking about people who think drinking alcohol is wrong for religious reasons or eating food is wrong or whatever for religious reasons. That's not what's the case with drunks. It's a totally different category. He dealt with that issue in Romans 13 at the end. That's a black and white issue. Romans 14 is not a black and white issue. He's dealing with issues of conscience. People who think because of religious reasons, certain things are wrong that aren't wrong. Totally different issue. John Murray, in his classic Romans commentary, in one of the appendices, has a couple of pages on this that are very, very helpful. What's going to be hard for you is you're going to read this passage at home and you're going to read alcoholics into it because you've been trained and so have I. Try your best not to read alcoholics into Romans 13 because that's where they're talked about. And if you really want to push this, in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. They need to get converted. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, if this is the pattern of their life, don't associate with them if they say they're Christians. But in 1 Corinthians 10, Romans 14, welcome them. Category mistake. Different issue. Now, by way of application, if I know someone who has a past of drunkenness obviously I'm going to use Christian common sense and love and I'm not going to push them to drink that just makes sense I'm going to treat it with care and concern but I'm not going to Romans 14 it's not talking about that 
unless they've now come to the point where for religious reasons and religious convictions, they think that it's wrong. And maybe now they live in two categories. Now, you say, why do you mention all of this? I mention all of this because here's what happens so many times. We have a misunderstanding of a passage. We misapply the passage. And now that's the only way we apply the passage. I'm saying, wait a minute. It's not even talking about that. Let's use this with weak Christians who think for religious reasons it's wrong to eat certain things, it's wrong to drink certain things, it's wrong to not observe or observe certain holidays. When typically that's the last thing on our minds. So let's think in those terms, different kinds of terms. So I hope that helps. We don't have time to do it, but I would love to end on 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10 is helpful because it's a complimentary passage. 1 Corinthians 10 says things like this, For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Psalm 24, verse 1. If you're a mature Christian, you see everything is God's. Eat, drink, for the glory of God. But he also says in verse 29, Why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? You know what? You don't live in paralyzed fear because it might bother somebody else. But in the heat of the moment, you're careful not to push weak Christians. You don't want to go there. And then I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. You know the passage. 1 Corinthians 10.31, he ends the whole thing with, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So here's what we can all agree on. If I've poked my finger in your eye and made you mad and all this kind of stuff, We can all leave saying whether we eat or whether we drink or whether we don't eat or whether we don't drink. Holidays, no holidays. We can all leave saying we want to do all things to the glory of God. Why? Because of the gospel. And that ends up uniting all of us. So let's leave on that note. Whether we eat, whether we drink, whatever you do. Because of the gospel is the context. You do it to the glory of God. You do it as an act of worship. Pray with me if you would. Father, thanks for our time together and thank you that your word is is clear. Sometimes it's clarity makes it even more challenging to us. But we are grateful for it. Uh, Lord, right now I I pray for people who are here who uh, are with Paul and they acknowledge and know that there's nothing that's unclean and everything is clean. Lord, may they use their Christian liberty wisely, not as an excuse to sin themselves. And may they use their Christian liberty wisely to not push others who don't share the same conviction. That they would love other Christians because Christ loved them and be very, very careful. Help us to be people who are characterized by care. At the same time, Lord, I pray for those who are here who who don't and are not able to say everything is clean and nothing is unclean. Lord, I pray that they would know that they are welcome in this body and that they can be exposed again and again to the Scripture that will help them know things and it will help them to have a biblically informed conscience so that they might grow spiritually. Help us to be loving and kind and gracious toward one another as we do live in this world. But may our heart beat for the kingdom of God before it beats for the kingdom of this world. In Jesus' name, amen.